I love a movie with a great twist ending, don't you? Probably the reason I like movies with twist endings is I'm the kind of guy that never sees the end coming. I mean, even if it's absolutely obvious, even if we're watching a kid's show with my little kids, and, and my boys are like, Dad, it's obvious that the cartoon horse has stolen the diamonds, okay? I'm, I, I'm oblivious to it. It always takes me by surprise. Maybe that's why I like them so much. Probably the gold standard of those kind of movies, at least for my generation, most of us have seen it, is The Sixth Sense with Bruce Willis. If you walked into church feeling young and spry this morning, I'll let you know that The Sixth Sense came out 19 years ago, okay? Uh, I remember going to see that movie as a teenager, completely frozen to my seat by the end of it. The twist was so dramatic, so unexpected. And the thing that I did almost immediately, I got another ticket to get back into the theater to watch the movie again, even though the twist had been revealed, even though you can't really watch the movie the same way a second time. I still was desperate to see it again, me and a lot of other people. That movie grossed a lot of money. Why? Why did we go back and see it again? Well, because now it's not so much the surprise, the twist, but now you get to see the rest of the movie in light of the twist. All the pieces that come before it start to make sense now in light of the end that you know is coming. It's like getting to see the movie again with new eyes. That conversation, that action, that thing that was done or said early in the movie, ah, now it makes sense because I know what's coming. And you know, Easter's a lot like that. Easter is a lot like that. Easter came as the great twist ending, the ultimate twist ending for the disciples of Jesus. It's interesting to note when we read through the Gospels, that nobody, not even the closest disciples, not Peter, James, John, Mary Magdalene, or even Jesus' own mother, anticipated Easter Sunday, anticipated that Jesus was going to rise from the grave. But since he did, now that he has come, we see in the scripture, it's like everybody who follows him now looks at the world with new eyes. Everything else now in the Bible, everything else in life, is seen in a new light. It takes on new meaning. It makes sense now. We get to see it with new eyes because Jesus has raised. And that is the basic message of Easter. Easter is for us a celebration not of one day only, but of a weekend where Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had come into the world to save us from our sins and he accomplished our salvation by carrying a cross. He died. It's what we celebrate on Good Friday. And having died and then having been buried, sealed up in a tomb, all hope was lost seemingly. But then on Easter morning, on Sunday morning, as the sun rose, so did Jesus Christ. He rose from the grave. God's ultimate expression of his power and of his glory shone forth in the resurrection of his son. And not just the expression of God's power and glory, but it's the victory that we now receive. It's the hope that we are now given as those who have faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. That's what Easter is all about. Now, in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see the Easter story in all four Gospels, of course, but we also see interesting accounts, some in Luke that don't show up in John and vice versa. And and one of the most intriguing accounts of Jesus' resurrection appearance is what I want us to look at today from Luke chapter 24. If you've got a Bible, or we'll put the scriptures on the screen here in a moment as I read them, this is called the story of the Emmaus Road. What Randy read for us, I asked him really just to set us up for what's about to happen. 
Okay? The women have seen the empty tomb. They report back to the disciples who view them as, as speaking nonsense. This doesn't make sense. We don't believe you. They even go and look for themselves, but there's nothing there. And they're perplexed. Well, then the, the, this is what happens. The Emmaus Road story, Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13. I'm just going to read the story before we dig into it. Luke writes, verse 13, And behold, two of them, two of the, the disciples of Jesus, were going that very day to a village named Emmaus which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still looking sad. One of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things have happened, but also some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early this morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went down to the tomb and found it exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And Jesus said to them, O oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther, but they urged him, saying, Stay with us. It's getting toward evening. The day is now nearly over. And so he went in with them and to, to stay with them, and when he had reclined at the table, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord really has risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. <clears throat> a long story, but a worthwhile read for us, because we're going to see in full focus only two things today. Two very simple truths about Easter. Uh, simple but profound and necessary for us. We're going to see through this story in Luke that Easter is practical and Easter is personal. Easter is both practical and personal. What do I mean by Easter is practical? Uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the central claim, the absolute core of the Christian faith. If you take the resurrection out of the story, everything about Christianity, everything about the Bible completely un ravels and comes to nothing. The apostle Paul said that. That's not my opinion. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 said, if Christ is not raised, our faith is in vain, and we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul doubles down. That's in the Bible. 
He says, if this didn't really happen, then everything about our lives is an absolute waste and we ought to be the laughingstock of the world. Paul said that. And so for us to understand Easter, Easter cannot be simply a nice spiritual story that we tell ourselves to comfort ourselves, to help us sleep at night. It has to be something that actually happened. It has to be a real event, really in time and space, that Jesus really physically rose from the grave, not just spiritually, but truly, it had to have really happened. And in that sense, Easter has to be, for us, practical. It has to be tangible. I love the way the stories of Easter unfold in the Gospels. I mentioned this already. Luke writes of Jesus walking alongside these men. Later on, Jesus is going to enter into the room with his 11 disciples, and he's going to eat fish with them. Mary Magdalene was the first person to actually see the risen Christ. She saw him in the garden outside of the tomb, and she assumed that he was the gardener. She didn't recognize him. Later on, at the end of John, Jesus meets the disciples as they're out fishing. He's on the seashore. He calls out to them, and he cooks them breakfast. Fish over the fire. Very earthy stories, very tangible, very practical. The way that the scripture is written, the the gospel writers believe that it really actually happened. And we get some insight into that. Uh, right here in Luke chapter 24. You notice how this story kind of unfolds. If you go back to verse 13, these two men are leaving Jerusalem and they're going to a place called Emmaus seven miles away. And they're walking, they're traveling under a heavy weight of sadness, aren't they? Why is this? Where are they going? What are they doing? This is not a day trip for them. These men are going home. Jesus, they had followed Jesus for a time. We don't know for how long. They were obviously with him in Jerusalem during the last week of his life, hoping that he would take his place as the great Messiah, the great deliverer of Israel in that week in Jerusalem. But instead, he was crucified. He was dead. He was buried. And now for these two men, they're packed up and they're going home. Party's over. He's gone. Everything for them has come to an end, and they're going to move on with their lives. That's what's happening here in in verse 13. So Jesus, in the midst of, of, this, of their sadness, of this journey home, Jesus himself, the resurrected Christ, comes up alongside them. There's really a lot of humor in this story. He walks up to them and says, what are you guys talking about? And they stop walking and they stand still. They look at the ground and they look sad and they say, are you the only one who doesn't know? And they begin to share their sob story with Jesus. Now Luke tells us that they didn't recognize him because their eyes were prevented from seeing who he really was. That's a divine thing. Luke doesn't tell us why that happened, but God prevented them from seeing Jesus for who he was for a time as they walked along the road. And these are two Jewish men who were followers of Jesus, who are now completely disillusioned and defeated, and they're about to tell us why. And there are some clues here, four clues in particular. Very briefly, I'm going to walk through Four things that this tells us about the resurrection as practical reality here, okay? Four things. Verse 19, these men say, who is Jesus? Jesus was a prophet, mighty indeed in word in the sight of God and all the people. Do you notice that these two men do not view Jesus as the son of God? He's a prophet. That's a very noble thing, but they don't understand him the way he claimed to be. Jesus said on many, many occasions that he was the son of God. He claimed to be God. That's why he was crucified ultimately is for making himself out to be equal with God. And yet in the minds of the disciples here, they see him as a prophet only. And he was a mighty prophet, but that's all. See, the Jewish people at this time had no concept of a man who was God. 
God is God. We are people, and there's a division between those two things that cannot be crossed. And so as wonderful as Jesus was in their eyes, they didn't conceive of him as being divine, as the Son of God. The Messiah to them was an anointed man who would deliver Israel, and clearly Jesus wasn't that man. They didn't understand his divinity. And we see in verse 20, the chief priests and our rulers delivered him over, they crucified him, and we had hoped we had hoped that he was, it was he who was going to redeem Israel. We really thought that he was the true Messiah, that he was the one who was going to solve all of Israel's problems and redeem us, deliver us from our pagan enemies. And yet it didn't happen. And see, again, the Jewish people, they're, they're simply reflecting what most people believed, that the Messiah could not be crucified. The Messiah could not be defeated. That's what would make him the Messiah. He would overcome. He would cast off. The, the burden of the Romans and deliver Israel to their former glory. And yet here he was dying on a cross and buried in a tomb. We hoped he was the one, we thought he was the one, but clearly he wasn't. They didn't understand why he died. Then in verse 22, some women went to the tomb this morning and they didn't find him there. And instead they came running back with, with this talk of, of angels and, and they said he was alive. We even sent some guys over there to, to double check and the tomb was just as they said, it was empty, but Jesus wasn't there. And they say this with tremendous sadness. Now it's an interesting thing in, in the culture of the day, uh, it's what we would now call a misogynistic culture. Women were held in very low esteem in, in uh, biblical times. They were considered second-class citizens. That was the culture. That was not unique to Jewish culture. Everybody felt that way. And so women were not even allowed to testify in the court of law because their testimony was considered invalid. They were not worthy of, of being uh, elevated to that kind of status to where we would even believe what they say. Now, that's a terrible thing, but that was the reality of the culture. In fact, uh, a man named Celsus, who was an enemy of the early Christians, wrote an, uh, a, a book explaining why Christianity can't be true. And one of his main lines of defense was, how can we accept the testimony of, quote, hysterical females? That was, what the time, that's what, that was what the culture was. And yet, it's interesting, if the disciples were making this story up, they would have never made women the first eyewitnesses of the empty tomb and of the resurrection. It works against their story in their culture. The story would have never gotten off the ground, and yet they continue to push that narrative. Women went. Women went. Women saw. Women reported. They were the first eyewitnesses. Their testimony was validated, even though the culture didn't validate it. And then at the end of verse 24, they said, listen, we, we double-checked, right? Because that's what men would do. The, the women's words, Randy read it for us, the women's words appeared to them to be nonsense, and they did not believe them. So Peter ran down to check, and Jesus wasn't there. Now, shouldn't they have been expecting that? Wasn't that the whole point? Didn't Jesus, on multiple occasions, prior to going into Jerusalem to suffer and die, didn't he say that was exactly what, what was going to happen? Jesus said, I'm going to go and suffer, I'm going to die and be buried, but on the third day, the Son of Man will be raised again to new life. I'll be raised from the dead. He told us that that was going to happen, and yet the disciples talk about the empty tomb with a weight of sadness and despair. They had no expectation of a person re being resurrected. And again, in Jewish culture, some, some of the Jews did believe in a resurrection, but it would only happen at the end of time. It wasn't something that would happen in time and space immediately. God, at the end of all things, would resurrect the righteous people. Jesus would be one of those people, of course, but not here and now. That just didn't happen. That was, that was beyond their categories. 
And that it, it's funny to us, when we read this over Luke's shoulder, we think, man, how, how could y'all have missed it? I mean, if it was me, right, if it was us, we'd have, we'd have been at the tomb before sunrise Sunday morning with, with balloons and, and streamers and cake, you know, doing a countdown. Ten, nine, here he comes, right? Nobody saw it coming. It was not in their categories that Jesus Christ could possibly raise from the dead. Now, why am I sharing all these things with us here from this story? These are clues. They're not proofs necessarily, but they're clues that point to this fact. This story only makes sense if it really happened this way. As Luke is writing this, if Luke and Mark and Matthew and John, if they were trying to create a legend in the hopes that people would buy into this you know, so-called risen Savior, they would have never written it like this. They would have never made the disciples look so utterly foolish and uninformed. You think about what's happening here. The disciples don't understand Jesus' divinity. They think he's only a prophet. They don't understand the purpose of his death. They, they think that his death means that he failed. They don't understand that he's meant to be raised from the grave because resurrection doesn't happen in time and space. They weren't expecting it. They weren't at the tomb Sunday morning. And then the first people who actually witness and return with this news are women considered uncredible witnesses, and yet they're actually championing this fact that the Marys and Joanna, that these ladies were the first ones at the tomb and they witnessed its emptiness in the angels. If Luke were making this up, he would have never added these details to the story. The story would have never gotten off the ground. The only plausible explanation as we look at this, as we study this, is it must have really happened this way. There's no accounting for it otherwise. And that's why we say Easter can't just be a nice spiritual story that makes us feel good. It has to have really happened. It has to be for us practical, tangible. Jesus Christ really rose from the dead. The tomb is still empty, and it will forever be because he's no longer there. Now, if it's practical, meaning if it really happened, if we can anchor our lives to a historical event that God produced in this world in time and space, then it has to be more than just practical. It has to matter for us ultimately. And here's the wonderful thing about God. God could have simply raised Jesus from the dead as a bare fact of history. You know, Jesus could have come from the grave 10 feet tall, glowing white, floating above the earth. See, I did it. You were all wrong. Look at me. And now he's gone. I mean, that would have, in a sense, been enough proof. But God is not content to do it that way. God makes Easter personal. In all of the accounts, God makes Easter personal. And we see it especially here in Luke 24. Look at what happens in verse 25. These men have shared their sad story. They don't understand who Jesus is, why he came, why he died, anything like that. And Jesus rebukes them. Notice what he says, verse 25, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he takes the whole Bible and he explains to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Jesus explains the whole story to them as they walk the seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Now, is this the most effective use of his time? Jesus has just been raised. I mean, it's the day of. And there's a part of me, at least in our celebrity kind of culture, I would think, wouldn't it have been more effective for Jesus to gather up about 10,000 people or so, to get up on a mountain, and to do all this for the crowds? Look, it's me, and then explain to them everything that he explains in this story. Wouldn't that have been a better use of his time? 
But right here, he does it for these two men. And y'all, they're not even two of the important ones. I mean, here's the funny thing about this story. One guy's named Cleopas. We never see him again in the Bible. The other guy didn't even have a name. Luke either forgot or his name wasn't important enough to remember. These are not important. This, this is not Peter and John. This is Cleopas and some dude. And here we are in the story. Jesus spends hours explaining this to them. I, don't, I haven't timed out. I've never walked seven miles probably in my entire life. I don't know how long it takes, okay? But this was not a short meeting. This was not a quick you know, breath on Jesus' part. He spent time with these guys. They had left Jerusalem disillusioned, deeply confused, and here Jesus is personally enlightening them to the truth. Once they get to Emmaus, the sun begins to set. These men beg Jesus to stay with them. It's getting late. Stay with us. He enters into their house, and he does something interesting. It doesn't come off the page, I guess, is very interesting. But notice in verse 30, when he had reclined with them at the table, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. This was an act that was reserved for the homeowner, for the host. Jesus enters in as the guest, but at dinner time he takes over. He presides over the meal. He takes the food. He blesses it, and he distributes it. Okay, He comes in, and he takes over, and that's when their eyes are opened up to who he really is. That's when God divinely opens their eyes to see Jesus and his true identity, and then he's gone. Now, at any point in this story, couldn't Jesus have just said, guys, it's me. Look, show them the nails, right? Show them where the nails were. Couldn't he have, couldn't he have disclosed his true identity to them at any point and saved a lot of time along the journey? But he doesn't. Notice, think about what Jesus does for these men instead. He enters into their lives. He initiates relationship with them. They weren't looking for him. They weren't at the empty tomb staring in, scratching their heads. They were on their way home. They were defeated. And Jesus introduces himself into the equation. He, he, uh, he puts himself into their story, as it were, and he walks with them, and he talks with them, and he explains things to them. He spends time with them. At the end of the day, he enters into their home, and he shares a meal with them. And that's when they see him for who he really is. See, this is as personal as it gets this is not Jesus merely trying to make sure his bases are covered and everybody knows he's alive. He spends time with these guys. And it's interesting that although the time was short, Luke tells us ultimately Jesus spent 40 days post-resurrection on the earth before he ascended. 40 days is not that long. There was a lot to do, a lot to cover potentially, right? But Jesus did in his resurrection the same thing he did in his ministry, in his life. He fellowshiped with people. He spent time with people. You're, you know how Jesus, Jesus never left anybody unnoticed? Nobody escaped his care. When strangers, when children, when down-and-out people, when diseased people, when demon-possessed people cried out for his attention, he always stopped and spent time with them. He fellowships with us. And that's what he's doing with these men, these, these seemingly unimportant disciples. Jesus spends his time with them because he cares for them. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus, at the end of the Bible, Jesus is speaking from heaven to a wayward church, the church of Laodicea. They are a church, a group of people who have grown lukewarm in their affections for Jesus, and he's, he's reproving them. He's uh, warning them, admonishing them, but there's an interesting, this is kind of a famous verse, there's an interesting thing Jesus says to these wayward people. Revelation 3, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. The one who hears my voice and opens up to me, I will come into him and I will dine 
with him and he with me. Jesus, even to those who are, in a sense, far from him at the moment, he beckons them back into relationship, into fellowship. He gives us the picture of a meal. You notice how Jesus was always eating with people? That didn't stop after he died. When he was raised again from the grave, he's constantly sharing meals with his disciples. It's an amazing thing. You know, in a moment, we're going to take communion, which is the great meal of the church. It's the, it's the bread and the cup that Jesus Christ called us to take together as the body of Christ, the church. That word communion literally means intimacy. It means intimacy with another. It's, it's not God who is far off giving us rituals to obey. Put your head down and do what I say. No. It's communion. We commune with God. That's what Jesus Christ has provided for us. That's what he came to do. You see, if if God's goal was for you simply to be a good religious person, there'd be no need for Jesus to die on the cross or, or even raise from the dead. There'd be no use for that. Jesus, if he comes at all in that case, would only have come just to be a good example for us to follow. Jesus could have come, I suppose, and said, listen, this is what it looks like to love God purely. This is what it looks like to really obey the commandments and do it from a, from a good and sincere heart. Now you go and do likewise. At the very best, Jesus would have been for us only an example. If, if God's great goal for you was simply to be an improved version of yourself, a good religious person. But see, that's not what our faith is. That's not the Christian faith. The Christian faith depends on the death and the resurrection of Jesus because God's great goal for us is communion with him. The Bible says that Jesus Christ died that he might bring us to God, that he might make us children of God. It's a relational thing that we now have. We were once far off, but now because of the blood of Christ, we've been brought near. We were once not a people, scattered individuals living in despair and darkness, but Peter says we are now the people of God. That's communion. That's what Jesus Christ has come to accomplish. And so we can have the fullness of God's love, the fullness of God's acceptance, not by anything that we do, not by goodness, not by religion, not by good intentions or anything else. We receive that as a gift by what Christ has done for us. His death for you. His resurrection for you, that we might now have life in him. That's what the Apostle Paul in Romans 6, he talks about the fact that we are united with Christ. We're united with Christ in his death, Paul says, Because by faith we die to the old self and we now live a new life. We die to the power of sin. We die to the penalty of sin. Those things are no longer accounted to us. We are made righteous. And then Paul says we are also united with him in his resurrection. And that's even more fantastic to consider. That just as Jesus rose from the grave, we too now walk in newness of life. We have life because he is alive. That's why Jesus could say something so radical in John 11 as, I am the resurrection and the life. It wasn't just something he did to show off. Jesus says, I am, I'm personified as life. I am the resurrection. That means if you are united with Christ by faith, if you are a follower of Jesus, then you not only have life here and now, but you have resurrection life forever because you are in him. And that's what he came to do. Not to dress us up and improve our behavior, but to make us new and children of God. Easter 
is personal. It's deeply personal. God wouldn't have it any other way. You know, I love how this story kind of concludes. Probably my favorite part of the story is the response of these two men. Jesus has broken the bread, their eyes have been opened, and he's gone. And Luke doesn't tell us why he does that either. He's just gone. But then the disciples respond, and I love this. Verse 32, they said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? We talked about the practical nature of Easter. It's a real event. It really happened. But bare facts don't change people's hearts. And that's why God was not content merely to mark it as a fact of history. It has to be made personal. Jesus Christ has to do for you, for me, what he did for these two men in Luke chapter 24. Only the revelation of Jesus to your own heart can light this kind of fire, can create this burning sensation within us. And I want to assure you today that it has nothing to do with your past or how good or bad you've been. It has nothing to do with whether you think you deserve it or earn it. Jesus Christ enters in to provide this as a free gift. And it may not happen that dramatically for you. And I want to encourage you in this too. Very, very shortly, my own experience in receiving Jesus Christ as my Savior, it's the the most boring story you're going to hear today. Okay? I I, I grew up, like many of us, I grew up going to church. I sang the songs. I knew the stories. But I didn't know Jesus. I would have told you I did. I would have assumed it. But there was no faith at work in my own heart until I was 16 years old. And at the age of 16, I was encouraged to start reading the Bible, actually read the Bible for myself. The first time I'd ever done that, I was encouraged to read through the book of Matthew. And so I did, with maybe one chapter a day, alone in my room, I started reading the Bible. Now, there was no spiritual integrity in that decision. I was really trying to impress a girl, okay? Full disclosure. I don't get credit for any of this. And yet I'm telling you guys, about seven chapters in, about midway through Matthew chapter 7, Without warning, my heart began to burn. And I felt this deep conviction that this book is true. This is true. Jesus is real. He is the Son of God. And not only that, I need him. I need him to save me. I knew, somehow intuitively, I knew it wasn't enough to just know the stories and sing the songs. I needed to know him. And right there, alone in my room in the spring of 1999, I became a child of God. I was made new. I received Jesus Christ by faith. I told you that was a boring story, but it's not boring to me because for the first time in my life, I felt what these men felt in Luke chapter 24, that unexplainable, undefinable feeling of a burning heart that Jesus Christ made Easter personal me, that I received him, and everything in my life was now changed. He set my heart on fire with his grace. I had nothing to my credit. I had no effort to show forth that I was going to prove myself worthy of God. He made himself my savior, entirely of his grace. And y'all, I was not at church. There was no preacher speaking. There was no music playing. I don't think I cried. It was not necessarily an emotional experience, but it happened. Easter became personal for me, and now life has never been the same. Do you know Jesus like that? Do you know Jesus, not just the stories, not just Easter Sunday church and lunch, but do you know him in a way that your heart 
can't contain him, and so it just burns. He's made himself personal. He's made himself real. Uh, if you want to, or even if you're unsure and you just, you're just curious, you just have questions, that's why we're here. We'd love to talk to you about it. And in all sincerity, you come find me at the, after the service, or, or just as well, you take one of our communication cards here. There's a little box on the bottom of this card that says, I'd like to talk about faith in Jesus. And even if you're not sure, I mean, it takes courage for a lot of us to, to even check a box. But if it's for you, something that God would compel you, that you cannot let it go, he won't let you go, your heart burns over this, then, then we want to help you walk through what it means to have faith in Christ. Because here's the truth. Uh, Easter, Easter's not important. It's not just important. It's ultimate. If it really happened, then it has to be of ultimate significance. We can't be indifferent. It can't be just pretty important to us. It has to be ultimate because we're not here. Listen, we're not here simply to be good religious people and pat ourselves on the back. We had a great Easter. And that's, that's not who we are today, and that's not even our goal for tomorrow. Your goal can't be simply to be a brushed-up, buttoned-up, cleaned-up version of yesterday's self. We're here right now because Jesus Christ died for our sins, and he was raised again to new life to show forth victory forever over sin, death, hell, and the grave. He did it just as he promised he would. It came as a surprise to everybody else but not to God, because God had planned it for the beginning, and he planned it on your behalf. And we are here, just like in Luke 24, we're here because Jesus comes looking for us. We don't have to go searching for him as if he's lost. He introduces himself into our lives. He has a way of doing that. He comes up alongside us as we walk along this life, especially when we're downtrodden, especially when we're hopeless and despairing. Jesus Christ is here for us. He walks with us. He talks with us. He enters into our lives and he presides. He takes over. He has fellowship with us. And by his wonderful grace, our eyes can be opened to who he really is and our hearts set aflame. See, that's what it is to be a Christian. We don't go through the motions. Another Easter in the books. It's the ultimate expression of his love, his power, his glory, and we get to be in Christ. So Easter was the twist ending the disciples never saw coming. We see this in the scripture, don't we? They never saw it coming. And yet what they find out when Jesus is revealed to them in the flesh, alive forever, what they come to realize is it's not an ending at all. It's a new beginning that for them, because Christ was alive, because he was raised, they could now see the, see the world with entirely new eyes. Everything else now makes sense. Everything that preceded it makes sense. His death makes sense. His ministry makes sense. And now all of life for us comes into a new focus because everything has been made new in Christ. And by his grace, he does the same thing for us. He'll give us new eyes to see. He'll give us a new life to live because Easter Sunday, Jesus came back to life. Let's pray. Father God, we are, are, we're hopeless without Easter and that's why we celebrate today. We need you today. We need, Lord, the, the truth of this message, Lord, not just to be true practically, although it is. We need it to be true personally. Lord, thank you, for, thank you for raising your son to life in such a way that he came back and he communed with us. 
He showed us what he came to do. He came to, to, to know us and that we might know him. And, and we see that, Lord. What a, what a wonderful testimony of your love for us and how personal you are, that you looked us in the eyes, that you shared meals with us, that you were patient with us in our ignorance and our sin. And Lord, that you made all things new by your grace. Would you do that today in our own hearts? Father, we cannot deserve this. We cannot live up to this or earn this. We simply receive it because Jesus Christ has loved us to the full. Thank you, Lord, that you died for our sins and that you were raised for our justification. We are now righteous forever because, Jesus, you are alive. And, Lord, would you preside over us in these moments and welcome us into your presence that we might know the fullness of your love both now and forever. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and we'll sing.